thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. Hey, when are you guys going to do the Eagle? Hey, how about an F-15 episode? Why haven't you done the Eagle yet? Come on, do the F-15 already. A fighter pilot podcast and no F-15 episode? You've been asking for it. Well, you got it. Here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, it's F-15 month. Every episode for the month of March is dedicated to this world-class fighter. Is it old? Mm, Yeah. Is it lethal? Oh, yeah. And now, the man who's never flown the F-15, your host, Vincent Aiello. Hello, everyone. I am your host, Jello, and welcome to what we're calling F-15 Month. It's the same format and schedule you're used to, but every episode for the month of March will feature the once McDonnell Douglas, now Boeing, F-15 Eagle and Strike Eagle. Now, I certainly don't want to try to tackle this alone, so here to help out as guest co-host is episode 25 hero, Mike Walsh. BS, long time no see, dude. Hey, Jello, great to be back, man, on the pod. And uh, I haven't been back in SoCal since I left, so it's been great to be back. No doubt. Yeah. Well, it's good to have you back in SoCal. So, all right, let's see. It's been a long time since we've seen you. After your episode on the U.S. Navy Flight School aired in September 2018, I think we had you back for a quick Facebook Live listener question and answer session. And then you were wrapping up your active duty time with the Marine Corps. Uh, what's new since then? Basically, a couple months after that, so in about December of 18, I uh, called it quits with the Marines and uh, after about 14 years or so. Wow. Yeah, decent run with those guys. Had a blast. Loved it. And then uh, I jumped over to the National Guard flying F-15Cs now. Okay. That's got to be quite the transition. And of course, that's why we're glad to have you back because how many hours did you end up with in the Hornet? Oh, I think I had uh, close to about 1,300. Okay. And what have you got in the Eagle now? And I have about a, barely 150. <laughs> well, that makes you the expert. <laughs> yeah, a little bit different. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, you're, the guests for today's show have just a few more hours uh, in the Eagle. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, I think this will really be interesting, though, because we'll be able to use your expertise, I'll say, in the F-18 and compare it to the F-15. And truthfully, that's kind of selfish for me because I know the F-18 so well and don't know the F-15 as well. So I'm really looking forward to that. We'll get to all that in just a little bit, but... First, how about some quick announcements? Well, our newest Facebook group for aspiring military aviators has been doing so well that we spun off a version just for our Australian friends. So if you happen to someday hope to fly for the Royal Australian Air Force or Air Defense Forces down there, check out the Aussie Pit by the Fighter Pilot Podcast. That's on Facebook, where you can collaborate with others who share similar goals. Some are farther along in the process. Others might just be getting going. But jump in there and help out or get help if that's what you need. 
Also on the shop page on our website, we've always featured various books we think you may enjoy. And now we're happy to announce we have book reviews for the ones I've personally read. Now I'm far from a professional book reviewer, so I simply offer some thoughts on the book and how I enjoyed it. Check that out at fighterpilotpodcast.com slash shop. And as mentioned on the last episode, a couple BVR Productions teammates and I will be at the Naval Air Facility El Centro Air Show in the Imperial Valley of Southern California on Saturday, March 14th, 2020. Now, as we record this BS, the air show coordinators have not yet released a list of aircraft on static display. So instead of saying I'll be under a certain aircraft at a certain time, again, just look for us strolling around in our FPP attire and be sure to stop us and say hello if you happen to be there. Again, that's Saturday, March 14th, 2020. Now, another thing is I've been invited to give a speech to a club in London at the end of March, and I will be there on the 31st for that, arriving a couple days before and a couple days after. So if you are a listener in the London area and you would like to meet up, I have not yet set a place or time, but we're looking to try to do that. Uh, Hit us up on email. Let us know if you're interested, and we'll try to get some information out for everybody as well. If you recommend someone to be interviewed for the show, or if you or yourself would like to be, let me know. And while I'm there, maybe we can meet up and get a few more future episodes out. All right, BS, you game for a couple of listener questions before we get to the F-15 interview? Let's do it. All right. Well, why don't we start with a phone call this week? Hello, sir. My name is Vincent Rawls, and I am an enlisted sailor in the United States Navy currently. I actually just graduated high school back in June, so I have the initial four-year contract. My question is, because I've always wanted to be a fighter pilot, um, I happen to pick a rate that's not really involved with aviation, though. But how many previous enlisted fighter pilots do you know of is the question I have. Because by the time I get out, I'll be around 22, and I'll be trying to still fit in that window of time to be able to achieve my goals. That's my question. How doable is it for me to achieve my dream? Thank you. Love the show. All right. Thank you, Vincent from Detroit. BS, do you know any prior enlisted who turned into fighter pilots? I know quite a few guys that actually did that in a cross service, which is kind of cool. So from the Marine side, one of my really good friends who I joined uh, the Black Knights with years ago was prior enlisted crew chief on, I think it was CH-53s. And then he went through what was the MESEP program, uh, essentially uh, submitted a standard kind of package to be selected, was selected, went to officer candidate school, and then just went through, got his commission. And then went through flight school just like anyone else out of college or whatever else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Marine Enlisted Commissioning Program. And I met a couple of those guys back in November when I had a chance to go to my alma mater, UCLA, and give a speech for those folks. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, I know one as well. In fact, he was on the show. I know several. I just can only think of one right off the top of my head. Uh, that's Josh Larson. He was on episode eight uh, on aircraft nomenclature. Did you find, just out of curiosity, with your experiences with those guys, did they either have either more uh, maturity or were they looked up to any differently from the enlisted because they had been one of them? I mean, how did they do, would you say, how effective were they as pilots? I think they're extremely effective. Uh, I know in the guard, for example, I mean, right now we have, I want to say six guys that currently in our unit, Wow, they were, used to be uh, crew teach, was essentially a plane captain in the Navy Marine Corps. So they were crew chiefs. They submitted their package to the board, got selected, you know, went through pilot training, and now they're flying eagles. And all their really good friends that they were crew chiefs with, most of them are still crew chiefs in the squadron. So 
when we walk out to the Jets and get ready to go, I mean, you can just see guys' faces light up because they just, they look and that's their buddy that, you know, years ago, <laughs> they were, you know, fixing Jets and turning wrenches and stuff. And uh-huh. now they're the ones that are pulling the handles and, you know, getting a blast off in an eagle. Right. And our unit specifically is really good about cultivating uh, internally. So we're always encouraging these guys to, you know, submit and, and try to strive to become a pilot if that's what they want to do. So, and they were great because they just bring a great perspective uh, right. that I don't have. Is I'm not enlisted, so I don't just don't have that. They do, and, and it really uh, just makes the unit much more close-knit. Yeah, I agree with that from what I've seen anecdotally. And I would say to your question again, Vincent Rawls, it's not, I would say, numerically the most common, but it's not impossible. And certainly guys are doing it and doing it well. All right, next, let's take an email. Jeff Hansen asks, as a former fighter pilot, I assume he's addressing this to me since you still are, BS, uh, can you address <laughs> what the fighter pilot of 2030 wants for the sixth generation planes? What would be a pilot's wish list for such a platform to be able to achieve air supremacy? Now, you've flown the Hornet and the Eagle, so I think you're kind of uniquely able to answer this. What do you think there, BS? I think we're kind of seeing this happen a little bit already with the F-35 and kind of some fifth gen or even beyond that. So for sixth gen stuff, this is just totally me speculating, but probably a platform that can talk to all other platforms because currently some can and some can't, and it gets kind of interesting and some frustrating. But what I mean by that is a jet that can talk to ground units, that could talk to ships, that could talk to other jets, airborne, and just distribute that information. I think it's going to be humongous in the next uh, you know decade or two. Other than that, I think, you know, just enhancing the sensors that are already on a lot of the airplanes and other systems that we have now, just taking that to the next level and just really getting that information out to the people who need it in a time-sensitive manner. I think that's going to be key. No, I totally agree. As I thought about this question, I summed that up as global essay. Yeah, absolutely. The ability to just know what everything is everywhere and who's with you or not, where the adversaries are. And yeah, I think that's going to be important. I still think that superior performance is relevant because in a denied environment of some sort, you could find yourself at emerge. And that's certainly lessons we learned the hard way in Vietnam. So I think that's still relevant as well as endurance, which again, trade off, but it'd be nice to be able to stay up for a long time. And I think long range weapons would also be good or the ability to support someone else's long range weapons, whether it's a drone wingman or something else. It's hard to know what the future will hold. And it's kind of like I, I read that Steve Jobs said, you know, people think they want this, but what they really want is what ended up being, I think, the iPod or the iPhone. Oh, yeah. Right. So there's yeah. probably people out there or, right, didn't um, someone ask Henry Ford uh, or if, if you asked them what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse, but he came up with a car. So I, I hope that there are people out there smarter than me, at least, who are coming up with something that I don't even know I want yet, but... Hopefully when we see it, uh, at least I'll be out of the picture. But BS, maybe you can go out and uh, tear it up. (laughs) Maybe my son will. There you go. The the performance piece, I think you nailed it there, Jello. You know, and we kind of saw this in Vietnam, right? We all thought the Sparrow missile was going to end within visual range engagements. And that was clearly false. And that's even more true today. Like that's going to happen in a large scale engagement. You, You simply cannot bring a bus into a uh like a racetrack environment right i mean you just, it's just not going to win right. so if you can see people from range and you can distribute information that's great but if someone sneaks through and starts to tangle it up you don't have an aircraft that can do that that's not going to go well for you so that's right all right next let's take another phone call hey Vincent, this is ab calling from fort worth texas quick question with the uh, replacement of the c2 greyhounds coming here with the cmv22s what is to happen with all the E2 Hawkeyes? I'm sure maybe you've mentioned it before. Someone's mentioned it, but I don't think I was necessarily listening to that part. But uh, 
yeah, that's my question. Love the show. And hopefully soon I'll uh, join the fleet. Appreciate it. Thanks. Bye-bye. All right. I listened to this a couple of times. I think he said AV, but I'm not totally sure. But at any rate, thanks for your call. And AV, just because the E2 and the C2 share similar lines and kind of came from the same family, if you will, doesn't mean that the E2 is going away just because the C2 is. In fact, the E2D Advanced Hawkeye is in development and should soon bring much better capability to the fleet. And that will be, I think, around for a long time. So we hope to eventually have an episode on the E2 as well as most any military aircraft. So uh, we'll look for that soon. That's one of those certainly where we would want a pilot and an NFO to talk about that one. So we may do that. All right, BS, this last one's right up your alley. This is from Jeremy from Indianapolis who asks, how does a pilot transition from one airframe to another, i.e. from an A-10 to an F-16, or in your case, uh, from an F-18 to an F-15, BS? Do pilots get to choose when and to which aircraft, or is it based on the needs of the service? Are pilots given, pardon the expression, a crash course in the new type? Is the training more in-depth? And lastly, do the pilots maintain their qualifications in their original aircraft? So BS, a lot of questions there. Let's start at the beginning. How is it decided uh, who goes where? In your case, it was somewhat a personal choice, but also they had to accept you, right? That's right, yeah. It really depends. For example, in the Marine Corps, at least, the F-35 is currently being phased in. So people can actually submit their uh, application to transition to the F-35. And if they get selected off they go into training and become an F-35 pilot. So kind of similar to what I did in the Guard where I wanted to fly the Eagle. Uh, I submitted an application. I went and interviewed and did all that process. I got selected. Now I'm flying Eagle. But there is uh, other side to that where I know in the past where a backseater, for example, in NFO could submit to become a pilot and they don't really necessarily know what they're going to end up flying. So they stop being a backseater. They, they start at day zero at pilot training uh, down in flight school in Pensacola. And they just kind of put their hat in the ring, just like everybody else did back in the day. And that could be a needs of the service type thing. I have seen, though, if uh, if you were a backseater, a Hornet backseater, for example, I can't think of too many guys that didn't go Hornets. I think that's what they wanted. So mm-hmm. I think they kind of try to make it work for you. I guess the answer is it depends. It depends on where you're looking to go, who you're looking to do it with, because uh, there's a whole lot of programs out there to facilitate that transition. Yeah, no doubt. And in some cases, your squadron might transition, right? So yeah. uh, there could be Marine squadrons transitioning to the F-35B or C, for that matter, right now. And if you're in that squadron, then you go through that. And then the second part is the you know crash course. Obviously, I think it depends on the difference between aircraft and how much you go through. I was recently a guest on our first episode of our sister podcast, Air Combat Sim, where we talked about the different FRS syllabi, and BS, you're intimately familiar as the former VMFAT 101 OPSO, but you could have a Cat 1 for a brand new winged pilot, a Cat 2 for someone who flew something else but needs all that similar training, but he's not brand new, and then a Cat 3 is someone who's been out of the cockpit for a while, and then a Cat 4 is someone who maybe is just, like in my case, I was current in the F-18 Hornet, but I got a Cat 4 in the Super Hornet. It was very quick, like a week or two, just a few hours, and some differences, lectures. In your case, what did you go through when you transitioned to the F-18? So when we went to the Eagle, I did what was called a TX, it was a transition program. And similar to kind of what we do uh, with the categories, Cat 1 through 5, there's a certain kind of regime within the TX, TX 1, vice all the way down, could be something from a quick, like you did Super Hornet transition that could last a week or two. There was guys up there that had plenty of Eagle experience that just needed a quick top off and kind of break the rust off and get back in the game. Mm -hmm. And that was about two weeks. For me, uh, they actually made a new track for 
former Navy Marine or real experienced fighter pilots transitioning to the Eagle that was very simulator heavy, but fairly light on flights. And I think I got 25 hours in the thing total in training, which if you think about it, I want to say that, you know, a new F-18 student probably walks out of there with close to a hundred hours, I would think. And here I am, you know, I'm experienced in everything. I've never flown an Eagle before. And my third flight, you know, I'm like a solo check ride. And uh, it was, it's kind of nerve wracking because yeah. you, you know, you know how to fly a certain type of aircraft, but maybe not this one. And it kind of feels the same and it smells the same, but it's a lot bigger and it's got more power. And you're like, oh my God, this is not a Hornet. This is an Eagle. Uh, I don't know if I should be doing this after four hours in the thing, but I think what they ended up settling on is a really good syllabus that really leverages on guys' experience. And for the guy, I think at this point, there's maybe close to about a dozen or so Navy Marine guys that I can think of. And there's other Air Force guys that do it as well that have done the program that I did. And I think um, it, it works pretty well. It's a good compromise between yeah. getting guys through the training effectively so they can get back to the squadron. But, you know, make sure these, we know what we're doing and we're properly trained so we're right. going to go out there and, and do something crazy. And again, at that point, you had roughly, what, 1,300 hours in the F-18 alone, let alone flight school. So you weren't a newbie, and they would not do that, obviously, with a brand new pilot. So I forgot the Cat 5. Is that just a guy who needs to go back to the boat? I think it was. Okay. Yeah, it was very quick. They yeah. Maybe a week or so flying, maybe a quick NATOPS check just to right. kind of... So if you were coming off a shore tour and all you need, you were already current, you just need to go back to the boat. All right, fair enough. And then his last question was, do pilots still maintain their qualifications in their original aircraft? Once again, our favorite answer, it depends. So when I learned the F-16 at then NSOC, now Nautic, I learned that, but I did not give up my F-18 quals. So I actually had three for one there. BS, I assume, even though you probably feel like you could jump back in a Hornet, you don't have any F-18s near you. There's no reason for you to maintain an F-18 qual. There is no reason, no. Uh, and I started back from scratch as a wingman in the Eagle. I'm, I'm still a wingman right now. So oh. hopefully we'll uh, in the near future, we'll start doing some uh, quals and, and getting back in the game and being more productive for the squadron. But it was interesting going from, you know, you're a weapons officer of the Marine Hornet training squadron, get a lot of responsibility, you know, a lot of people looking for you to give them the guidance, you know, and especially tactically. And now the other, it's the other way around where I'm, I'm the new guy in the, and I'm asking all the questions because, you know, I walk into a squadron full of guys that have been flying the Eagle for a long time and they're really good at it. <laughs> it's been kind of a neat dynamic to yeah. do that, but it's definitely, you start from scratch. And, yeah. Well, and I hope they still give you the respect due for your other experiences. And you're probably smart enough to not pretend like you know everything about it with, the, sure. with those guys. But sure. uh, yeah, and you offer, I think, a fresh perspective too, because you can say, well, in the F-18, it works like this. And so I wonder why it's different. Anyway, we're going to get to all that here after we listen to our interview in just a little bit. Speaking of that, we can pretty much transition to it now. Any thoughts? I mean, you had a chance to listen. Any thoughts before we get to the interview? Yeah, I listened to the interview. I really hope the listeners enjoy it. I mean, you got a couple of legends yeah. and absolute legends in the <laughs> Eagle community here. I mean, I want to say cumulative orders are like 8,000 hours. Uh, a little over 72 or something like that, I 75. Mean, yeah, with it's crazy. With some great experience. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, re I really think that people are going to listen to this and love it. So. Oh, for sure. Well, on that note, the one thing we didn't talk about when we talked about variants was the different uh, lots and blocks. Now, I guess in uh, the F-18 world, you flew all the different lots, mm -hmm. but you said you're flying the, F uh, the F-15C now. Are there different blocks there? There are, yeah. Most of our jets, believe it or not, are from the late 70s, early wow. 80s. So okay. it's kind of interesting when on the tail of an eagle, uh, it'll say something like, Eight zero dash, you know, one two three or whatever, in the mm -hmm. first two of the year that the jet came out. So, so nineteen eighty in that. Yeah, nineteen eighty in that case, right. and uh, so it's kind of neat to see that. So you've got some older ones, but I'm sure they're still 
Good ones, huh? I mean, I, <laughs> the first time I, I showed up to my unit, we were just kind of walking the flight line, just kind of just kicking the tires and seeing it. I mean, I think there was like 12 Eagles on the line. And I mean, these things looked like they were just like, we just got them off the line like three days ago, which is a testament. Our people take incredible care yeah. of our airplanes. And not to take away from that, but it probably helps also that they never have to go out to the boat. They don't have to go to the boat. They don't operate in salt water. And it's the Air Force, right? So their yeah. airplanes are their their main effort, right? Which is yeah. a different kind of mentality than you get in the Navy Marine Corps side. Uh, it's just the way they, where they allocate and basically where they prioritize their funds. For sure. Different. All right. Well, why don't we get straight to the interview? Great. Okay. Well, before we play the interview, let me tell you about our sponsor for this show, Simplisafe. Every night, local police departments across America receive hundreds of calls from burglar alarms. The vast majority of the time, police have no idea whether the alarm is legit. Is there really a crime being committed or not? Well, normally, all the alarm company can tell them is, quote, the motion sensor went off. Well, Simplisafe home security is different. If there's a break-in, Simplisafe uses real video evidence to give police an eyewitness account of the crime. That means police dispatch up to 350% faster than for a normal burglar alarm. You get comprehensive protection for your entire home. Outdoor cameras and doorbell alerts let you know if anyone's approaching your home. Entry motion and glass break sensors guard the inside. Plus, Simplisafe protects your home from fires, water damage, and even carbon monoxide poisoning. 24-7 monitoring is provided by live security professionals. You can set up your system yourself, no tools needed, or Simplisafe can do it for you. And it's only 50 cents a day with no contracts. Visit simplisafe.com slash jello. You'll get free shipping and a 60-day risk-free trial. You got nothing to lose? Let Simplisafe know who sent you by using my call sign. That's Simplisafe, S-I-M-P-L-I-S-A-F-E dot com slash J-E-L-L-O. Thanks. All right, the Fighter Pilot Podcast is back in Las Vegas, third time in as many months. And back in the room with me is Terry Scott. Stretch, how the heck are you, buddy? And Jello, I'm good. I'm good. How about you? I'm going to have to start paying you. I'm good. You're like coming and helping. I'll take the money. Yeah? I'll take the money. Well, how about a refreshment instead? Okay. All right. One well. IPA for everybody. <laughs> That's right. It's good. No, there's more, actually. Anyway, well, dude, I am excited about this for a couple reasons. Number one, People have been asking for an aircraft episode on this particular aircraft for a long, long time. But number two, there's like over 7,000 hours in the F-15 sitting in the room. Well, as a matter of fact, there is. That is amazing. So do me a favor. Why don't you introduce our guest tonight and your good friend? Yeah, Brian Spider-Man Camp. We've been friends for probably 20-some years. We've both flown the Eagle for a long time, yeah. and Spider-Man is the most current in the Eagle. All right. Compared to you, you mean? Yeah, compared okay. to me. Yep. So I had about 3,500 hours in the Eagle, and Spider-Man's got well over 4,000 in the Eagle. So a great breadth of experience. Spidey, welcome to the show, buddy. Hey, thank you. So <laughs> proud to be here. It's an honor to be here with you. Stretch, my buddy. You 22, 20 back, right? plus years, and uh, and definitely to be here for your audience and answer wow. their questions. So glad to be part of this experience. All right. Spider-Man got me through weapon school. Yeah. yeah? All right. <laughs> well, you are a retired colonel in the Air National Guard. True. Okay. And I think you said before we rolled about 4,200 hours in the About 4,200 hours. The interesting part in the Eagle, since we uh, only average 1.3, uh, so an hour and 18 minutes average, right. uh, over 3,300 flights. That's wow. the more yeah. impressive part. Yeah. Uh, when you talk to the heavy guys, at least. And all over the world, as I understand, as we'll get to in a moment. And let's actually go there now. So, dude, where are you from? What did you do? And what are you doing now? 
So uh, from all over, my dad also was in the Air Force, okay. uh, 27 years, uh, B-52s in Vietnam. We lived all over the U.S., 12 different states. And then I joined the Air Force, uh, multiple different states, live in Germany, live in England, live in Hawaii, which is fantastic. Best awesome. state ever. We're uh, Stretch and I had a second tour together, which is amazing. From the U.S. of A, uh, went through... University of Nebraska, because my dad was stationed off at Air Force Base, okay, uh, which was back in the day, SAC headquarters, Strategic Air Command headquarters. So uh, stayed in Nebraska, Cornhusker for college, electrical engineer, worked for Boeing as an engineer, oh. ironically designing flight controls for drones <laughs> back in the 80s, not realizing I'm putting myself out of a job. So uh-huh. got an OTS slot, joined the Air Force, and I uh, went to pilot training, got the F-15, okay. off to Germany, and then England, and then to, after 10 years in active duty, joined the uh, Missouri Air National Guard. Wow. Is that all you flew, or did you take a break and go fly the F-117 or So uh, interesting, or uh, uh, a lot of my mentors flew seven, eight different types of aircraft. I was boring and only learned how to fly one, <laughs> fly the F-15 uh, Eagle for 30 years straight. Did he get good at it in that time stretch? He's pretty doggone good. <laughs> still working. Still pretty, working. Yeah, we're still right. we're still working on it, but he's pretty doggone good. Oh uh, man! Wow, thirty years straight—that's a significant accomplishment. I I flew it twenty straight years, yeah. and uh, that's pretty cool. How did the Air man. Force not get their mitts on you guys and go make you do something in the Pentagon for heaven's sakes? Because I joined the Guard. Uh huh. Had some choice in my decisions <laughs> and where I would be assigned. All right. And uh, any, anything that had an eagle <laughs> to fly on the side. I'm jealous. I should have done that. All right, guys. Well, we can certainly bounce around. I think the F-15 is an awesome airplane. I'm really looking forward to learning more about it. I'm sad to say never fought an Eagle. I fought a Strike Eagle once, and that worked out okay for me. But I really want to learn about this. And to me, this is always King Kong. I mean, Stretch, you and I talked about the F-22, but that's a relative newcomer to me anyway. But the F-15, I mean, it's been dominating for 30 years more, right? Oh, yes. And still to this day, mm. you know, when I do my aggressor role out at Nellis, I just still cannot figure out a way to get away from the F-15. <laughs> I've tried. <laughs> Fight's on. You guys are dead. Yeah. So the number, it's 45 years. So 1974 was okay. the first squadron that was open wow. 45 years ago. So the F-15, interesting of how you started your podcast through the muscle cars. Well, the mm-hmm. F-15 was designed as the muscle car yeah. of the air. Yeah. And I think it does that quite well. All right, well, let's do that. Let's start at the beginning. How did it come to be, and what was it designed to do? So the F-15 was absolutely designed for air dominance. Mm. So McDonnell Douglas came up with a plan based on requirements from the Air Force on, hey, how can we dominate the skies, all altitudes, and truly perfect the air-to-air war. Mm-hmm. And they designed the F-15. And what's interesting is the radar for the F-15 was designed first because... They said, to win this war in the air, we have to be able to detect other planes. So basic engineering, the bigger the dish of a radar, the further you can see. So they built a three-foot, basically a yard-wide diameter (laughs) dish of radar. Which then specified the width of your... Fuselage, exactly. Right? So the they nose, go, okay, here's the cone for the plane. What yeah. needs to support that? So they built a tennis court behind it, which is about the size of the 15, is a tennis court to support really? that radar. Wow. And uh, they start off in the 70s. And the muscle car analogy is they wanted to have all the records, and they gained all the records. So the time to climb record, the fastest of any plane ever built at the time in the 70s mm-hmm. uh, to climb up in the 90s over 100,000 feet actually he got by the time he pulled yeah. out so to speak so 
they had it chained down. So that's a, a video to go look for is the chain down of his for the street yeah. Eagle. Yeah. And no how paint, right. Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so they designed it to do all altitude air to air only. So okay. air to air missiles, air to air gun, Gatling gun, uh, which is on many of the aircraft mm-hmm. uh, fighters, but it was designed to be an all altitude, all weather fighter, be able to launch quickly for air defense, uh, which still happens in the U.S. We can talk about that later, about the air defense capability. Yeah. And I would argue uh, does all those things quite well. It's exceptional. Yeah. It's amazing how just like your iPhone has uh, morphed from the first uh, oh, yeah. edition or talk about flip phones to what we have now with, <laughs> uh, with the current technology is the F-15 is not the same plane 30 years later after flying it in the late 80s to flying mm-hmm. it now. It looks the same. Same structure, but the avionics, the capabilities, the weapons, the uh, computer systems, everything is completely revamped to be a completely different capable plane, even though its mission has not changed. It's still air dominance. Yeah. And, of course, the radar has changed on uh, some of the later variants with the active scan. So there's a lot of improvements, as you would expect, over 45 years, but still basic same airframe, I guess. Uh, it is basic same airframe, yeah. yes. They're doing some uh, modifications to the support structure because mm. the aircraft was not designed to fly for 45 years. Okay. So <laughs> pulling 9Gs or sometimes more than 9Gs, yeah. which is nine forces times the the gravity that we sit, you know, we're sitting here at one force of one yep. gravity. So mm-hmm. 9Gs over and over and over is just uh, the whole principle of the any type of metal you bend over yeah, and over, right. yeah. so it's going to start to break. So it's the same airframe, but the weapons are different. The system is different. The capabilities for the pilot, helmet mounted sights, right. like you said, the electronically yeah. scanned radar, the missile systems are all different, including new engines, sort of. Newer than the 70 models, but uh, everything's been upgraded, but it looks the same. Okay. I think that's a true testament to the design of the aircraft. Is It's an outstanding weapons platform. You know, when they built the airplane, the wing was designed for 5Gs at 30,000 feet sustained. Mm. And so that has carried that platform throughout time. And so the flight controls are good on the airplane. It's got a control augmentation system. And like Spider-Man said, the engines have been upgraded and are, are substantially more reliable than when, they, uh, when the airplane first came out. Okay. Are they more powerful? A little bit, but it's uh, mainly because of the digital system. So it's a digital okay. control now to make sure the uh, engine is operating at optimal uh, level. So because of the digital aspect, it can be operated closer to 100% gotcha. than you could with an analog system. Okay. So more power based on the digital, more than the actual thrust of, okay. the, of the power. So it's more plane. of a fine-tuning than Correct. it is of a, like in the Hornet, around the Block 15, they came out with the EPE, Enhanced Performance Engines, and it was 2,000 extra pounds of thrust in Afterburner, for example. Uh, but it sounds like yours is more efficiency, more fine-tuning. It sure is. A carburetor almost. Yeah, the uh, Pratt & Whitney engine is what they have. The yeah. 100s were analog. When you'd select afterburners at a certain percentage of times, the afterburner wouldn't light. Oh, okay. So with a digital system, it's routine. You can light or unlight uh, the candle, as we call it, sure. uh, over and over, and it's very low. You don't have to think much about your left hand Good. in yeah. the Eagle anymore. All right. 
Anymore. Okay. Yeah, anymore. Interesting you used to have to. Okay. You used to be very cautious when you'd go into afterburner. We'd just barely put them over the hump, get them, make sure the nozzles would move, and then slowly work the afterburners in. Now you can just go right from 80% right to full afterburner. Nice. It will light and work fine. All right. So for air to air, is there a bread and butter mission for the Eagle? Um, I mean, you got OCA, DCA, there's a lot of different variants, but what is maybe the heart of the envelope for this thing? Or maybe what did you guys enjoy most doing in it? Yeah, F-15 is made for air dominance. And so OCA, DCA, so OCA being offensive counter air right. to bring our forces to the enemy, protect those forces is one of the primary designs. And we do it extremely well. I can talk about that later with some Desert Storm stories. For the DCA, defensive counter air, the F-15, I still today think is the best aircraft we have <laughs> for air defense because of its ability to scramble, alert launch, just like the firemen, you get the horn go off, how fast you can get right. airborne. F-15 can be airborne in three minutes. Wow. Unlike any other plane that we have on air defense. And we can be ready to go and ready to shoot down anybody who's uh, penetrating our airspace on a defensive posture mm -hmm. uh, in less than three minutes. And I cool. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com slash careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com slash careers. Visit today. Now, let's talk about the variants, and I'll caveat this by saying you guys have schooled me already off tape that the E, Strike Eagle, is a total different animal. And I had at one point thought about doing a combined episode like I did the Hornet, Super Hornet, but those are pretty much the same airplane with some differences. But let's talk A through D, and then my hope is I can find a guest. I uh, had one, and he hasn't answered my emails lately, but I'll have him listen to this, and then we can fill in another episode on the Strike Eagle. But for A through D... What are some of the differences? Like the Hornet, I guess, the B and the D are the two-seaters. But what's the difference, let's say, between the AB and the CD? Well, it's funny as you say, since McDonnell Douglas, now Boeing, makes, right. makes both <laughs> planes, right. the Hornet and the Eagle, yeah. it's exactly the same nomenclature. So mm -hmm. the B and the D are just two-seat trainers. Uh, we'll take those up for motivation and for uh, <laughs> uh, dignitaries and all the rest of it to okay. give awareness and Mainly for training, though. Uh, the A and the C are single-seat fighter variations designed for combat. The A and the B were the old-school original designs right. back in the 70s that were finally replaced by the C and D. So we had an overlap for a while, and the National Guard flew the A's and B's mainly for a number of years. So literally 20 years ago, the mid-90s, all the A's and B's are gone. They're in the boneyard. So it's C and D, single-seat right. C, two-seat D models. 
there was a, a difference in fuel as well. About 2,000 pounds? About 2,000 okay. pounds. So internal on the A model was about 11,000 pounds. And I think the C is about 13,500 okay. or so. So it's about 2,000 pounds of okay. fuel difference. The other thing that the reason the A didn't stay around was it wasn't modifiable to the current avionics uh, okay. suite. So they had to upgrade the avionics suite to keep the capability. Mm-hmm. It just didn't have the capability to do that. Gotcha. Now, let me ask you guys this. In the air wings that deploy on aircraft carriers, there will always be a two-seat squadron, and that is because the Navy believes there are certain missions that are better suited to a crew of two. In the Air Force, you said training. So is there not a need for a two-seat D to go out and do? I mean, even our Fs and Ds in the Navy and the Marine Corps do air-to-air, but is there no deployable D squadrons for Eagles? Well, there's no such thing as that. So okay. now we're getting to the E model strike right. uh, mission where they're mm-hmm. all two seaters. Right. So the only purpose of the D model, uh, same thing with the B, is is just to retrain someone who's been out of the cockpit long enough that okay. they don't, they're not sure if they can land. So they have an instructor in the back. Gotcha. Maybe the first time they've uh, refueled in six years. So hey, let's get an instructor in the back seat. But there is no mission for the back seater at all. In okay. fact, there's no ability to control the avionics, and most of the avionics in the back seat don't even exist. So there's not the awareness. So literally, the only purpose of that back okay. seat in the D is to be the safety observer okay. and uh, let me show you. I'll show you, and then you do it. Yeah, now most operational squadrons would only have maybe one, maybe two D models. For the reason Spidey just said. Exactly. Yeah, okay. So the flying training units or the uh, fleet replacement squadrons, mm-hmm. when I was at the second fighter squadron, I think we had eight two-seaters. And you could soloize the back seat probably exactly. and fly, fly it like a C if you needed to. It's solo most yeah. of the time, unfortunately, because half the reason for that back seat is for incentive flights, right. uh, for the maintenance folks and everybody else in the base who does great things. So... The superior performers would get on the list to find the back seat, and we would love to find. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. But that's about what it was for. No okay. one. I and really the flight, enjoyed the doing flight. incentive flights absolutely. in the Eagle. It was no. fun, and the flights <laughs> were fun. Docs, absolutely, so they could understand what we go through physically, yeah. so they could better uh, help us when we have right, physi- so they, physi- physiological yeah, needs. They get up there as well. Yep. And then, like you said, the uh, C model has been upgraded since. With a handful of them have uh, the AESA, as we call it, the joint helmet. Did the A and B, like our F-18 A and B did not have, of course the B was just a trainer also, but the A did not have AMRAM. Did your F-15As have AMRAM, do you recall? So the A models did not have AMRAM. Okay, but they're so gone So that now. was one, uh, they're yeah. gone. And okay. so uh, that's uh, actually what we flew in our squadron from Bitburg is A models okay. uh, from Inchilik, Turkey over Iraq for Desert Storm. And we did not have AMRAMs. Uh, in fact, no one had AMRAMs yet. They came out the year afterwards. Yeah. But so no, the A's, A models were not upgradable to that. And um, the other piece of the puzzle for the upgrades is the uh, software for the C models. Uh, they had the uh, computer-driven, basically it's a TV screen. Okay. Um, so we have a, a full Mul- monitor. Multifunction display. There you okay. go. That allows us to do upgrades and to change the software very easily. And then, again, not talking about the E, are there any other variants? I know in the news I've heard the F-15X recently. I don't know what's going on with That's that. That's a but... future option. Okay. So uh, they're looking at that. In fact, there's funding to actually procure the F-15X. And it's, they're not sure if it's going to be the EX or the X, or I'm not sure what the nomenclature could be. But it's basically same builder Boeing with a two-seat model, but more focused on the air-to-air, uh, but the option to do uh, air-to-ground as well. So okay. I understand. All right, so like an F-18 in that regard. Yeah. Okay, and then who all flies this thing besides the U.S. Air Force? So there are multiple countries. I'll probably miss some. It's Singapore, South Korea. Uh, we've got Saudi Arabia. 
I'm sure I missed a couple besides Japan, US, I think. Israel. Japan, sorry. Japan, Israel, and Israel. Japan. Israel, yeah. I did a, a one year remote tour helping the Saudis set up their flying training unit there oh, really? in 1994. Very crazy assignment. <laughs> <laughs> Should we leave it at that? Yes. Not not recommended. <laughs> All but right. Crazy. You didn't uh, you didn't log I any survived and I'm really happy about it. Did that. you log any green ink? <laughs> Ooh, no. <laughs> Well, you're not far from the action in that country. That's kind of crazy. Uh, yes. A whole different discussion. Perhaps. That's every flight. Uh, every flight. Every, really? Uh, yeah. You're always carrying so I was, Actually, I was uh, down at uh, Kamis Mache. We were 90 miles from the Yemeni border, mm. and the wow. Saudis would call them border disputes. <laughs> there was a lot going on down there, and I'm like, okay, I, I'm an American. I need to stay well north of that yeah. border. Yeah, for sure. By the way, do you guys also use green ink in your logbooks? Is that an expression that you guys are familiar with? No? Okay. In the Navy logbooks, if you do a combat or contingency flight, it goes in green. Whereas night flying goes in red. Just and learned something going new. Blue. Yeah, all right. Jello, so, you're can, educating us. Yeah, Thank you. you. I didn't know that. Right. I had no, when you said green ink, I'm like, mm, yeah, uh, whatever. He it must matches the Saudi about. flag for me. I don't know. <laughs> all right. Fair enough. Let's see. We've been through what a was designed to do what it's doing well the variants uh looks i mean you got you said it's pretty big huh so about as big as a tennis court well it's about as big as a tennis court if you overlay it yeah it's <laughs> yeah. huge it's a All it's right. one of the biggest fighters uh out there the f-22 is very close to it frankly All right. All right. but uh when it was designed in the 70s definitely the biggest fighter ever much bigger than the same company that built the f-4 mcdonald douglas they built the f-15 totally different design so Almost as big as tennis court, uh, as Stretch alluded, the wings are designed for 5G turn. So if anybody who's been in a roller coaster, the max G in the roller coaster is about four. Most okay. of them about three and a half mm-hmm. when you get to the, oh, I feel squish level. So this plane was designed for 5Gs at 30,000 feet when the air is pretty thin. If you're at sea level, it can pull nine without ripping the wings off. It's pulled 12 uh, many times. It's amazing the design of uh-huh. it. So. That's not the point of this question, though. So with the camber of the wing, it can fly at uh, multiple altitudes, and I forget what the question is. <laughs> How <laughs> do you get on that? Why is it that big? Well, so we go back to the radar, remember? Yeah, so we start yeah. with that, the one yard, one meter. That's right. Uh, diameter. For the dish. Uh, for mm-hmm. the dish, right? Mm-hmm. And now part of that is 85% of the aircraft now, the 15C models are flying with uh, phased array radars, right. the ESA. Mm-hmm. So the aircraft behind it to fly high altitude with the cambered wings, uh, they go, hey, we need a couple engines. So we have not only backup, so we have more thrust. Right. And we want to have firm control of this aircraft during dogfights. So that's where the two tails came from. Mm-hmm. So the tails are about 12 feet tall each. If you're standing on the ground, they're 18 feet from you at uh, wow. the top. So those tall tails, two of them with the big rudders, allow the aircraft at high AOA, so slow speeds, nose up high, to turn, not a pedal turn like the F-22, <laughs> but you can do significant yaw at speeds slower than you can take off. Oh, wow. So about half the speed you can take off, you can still fly this controllable with rudder and a little split throttle perhaps, helps you a little <laughs> bit, and do a significant yaw and make this thing turn into a helicopter of wow. sorts. Uh-huh. Uh, which makes it an incredible dogfight machine at slow speeds, but also because of the camber high altitude wing, it can fly high yeah. and fast speeds. So you can go from low altitude to high altitude, slow speed to, f- to high speeds in a very short amount of time because of how it's designed. So that's why it was built as it is with two tails, mm-hmm. two engines, big wing, 
And the big wing provides low weight to the wing. Right. So you can fly at very high altitudes. So and we're fast. very comfortable in the high 40, mid 40s for right. sure. Mid 40s, uh, which gets us a high mock to help us basically slingshot the missiles yeah. that we're flying with at uh, further distance. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay. So as I understand, one of the aircraft that John Boyd, Colonel Boyd, was involved with, with his energy maneuverability stuff, of course, then along came other people that said, let's add a ladder and all these other impure things to it, which added to weight, but still a very good fighter. But let me take a step back. I mean, the three of us have no problem with this, but for the listener who maybe is not as familiar, an F-16 is pretty obvious, single tail, very small, but an F-14, 15, and 18 have some similarities. So how do I tell the difference of an F-15 to the other two, apart from the markings for Navy, of course, which some promotional posters I've seen will screw that up and put Air Force on an F-18 aircraft silhouette. But tell me how to distinguish an F-15 from the other two. It's a tough at distance, so you have to get a little closer. So as you're getting closer, uh, within a couple miles for sure, maybe mm-hmm. within a mile to determine the difference. So the F-15 has straight vertical tails. Right. They are parallel to one another, and the engines are inside of those tails, very close together. Okay. So a lot of the differences are from the rear end of the plane as well as the front. So that's an example from the from the rear because mm-hmm. you compare that to the F-14, the engines are right under the tails. They're oh, also okay. straight and vertical, mm-hmm. but they're a little wider stanced and the engines are under the tails, so they're wider apart. So if you look at the two between, you can tell, hey, one has a gap between the engines. That's an F-14 versus a F-15. As opposed to the F-18, big differences because the tails are canted. Right. They're not parallel to one another. So the top end of each tail is further away than the uh, the base where it's attached to the aircraft. And the engines to F-18 are even closer together than the F-15. So it's really tight engines, canted tail F-18, mm-hmm. far apart engines, straight tails F-14, close engines, straight tails F-15. Other pieces of that mainly now as we get to the straight tails, which really kind of is the harder part between the F-14 and F-15, now we get to the wings. So that's really the, where the big obvious difference is at any angle from the F-14 and F-15. F-14 wings are sweepable right. mechanically, but they can sweep forward like an F-111. So they're straight wing basically for takeoff and landing versus swept way back for, hey, I want to go fast. F-14, when it's swept back, is swept much, much further back than F-15, right. which is a fixed wing, yeah. doesn't move. It's just a slight angle, mm-hmm. uh, straight in the back. So there's many differences, but those are some. Yeah. The intakes, obviously, are other things, but that gets into really detail where you're inside of about you know 4,000 feet when you're seeing the shape of the intakes, but I won't get into that. Yeah, no problem. Just out of curiosity, so both you guys ended up in the airlines at one point or another. Was the F-15... Uh, like in my F-18, I had a limited to centerline thrust, even though there's two engines. The F-15 was it? the same way. Okay. I don't you think had F- to get that removed, the centerline right. thrust restriction. Yeah, I don't think the F-14 was, but I probably shouldn't say. Cause I think I, you're correct because oh, they're yeah. so far apart. Okay. Yeah. Yes, they were. So yeah, yeah that's exactly right. All right. Spidey, I'm going to say it for you since you didn't, but I'll never know because I'll never be behind you in the F-15, right? All right. So I'll never, I'll never see the engine. I'm not uh, saying that. Uh, <laughs> not for you, long. No? Not for long. <laughs> you might be back there. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, speaking of that, uh, we're going to get to armament and performance, but we already touched on it. So flying the thing pretty agile. I mean, again, when I think of an Eagle, I think of high, fast, 
hitting me at right after fights on at a long range. But if we get in the phone booth together, are you guys pretty capable there too? Again, I never had a chance to swirl with an eagle, but my guess would be if I could get you slow in my Hornet, I might do okay because the Hornet's really designed for that. Well, so that's a good point. And to any fighter, <laughs> uh, aviator, he knows his threat, knows his adversary and that's what right. their advantages are. So the F-18 Hornet, you're correct with the forward-leading slats and the ability to uh, really turn your nose all the way around at 70 knots is pretty amazing. So we can't go quite that slow and turn as quite as fast as you. However, the F-15 was so well-designed, it can do the high-fast, as we talked about. It can do the scramble launches in three minutes. minutes. It can get up to 45,000 feet going Mach 1.5 in no time. Mm. Then it can do an intercept and slow down and do a dogfight, 9G turn, and get down to 70 knots and still maintain if the pilot knows what he's doing against the F-18 because of the thrust ability. Yeah. So we can out-thrust and out-climb you and still do... Uh, split throttles and rudder. And if you're conscientious of the AOA that you're under, you can still maneuver the jet very easily at 80 knots. That's not where we'd like to be, but we can do the spiral staircases. We talked about it Mm -hmm. with the rudder full in at 35 AOA and keep going around for a while and then really quickly accelerate once we have the tanks off the jet and our (laughs) clean jet. Seriously, we can accelerate very quickly and now get right back to 450 knots pulling 9Gs again. So that's the advantage of the Eagle, the combination of the power, the ability to accelerate, and the ability to fly high and fast, and also at any altitude and do turns, like we talked about with the camber of the wings, to Mm. pull 5Gs at 30,000 feet. Most aircraft can't do that. They have to be lower altitudes. So our advantage is higher altitude. However, we can fly at all altitudes and, and do pretty well. I got a story. So uh, weapon school, (laughs) probably Spider-Man was on this ride with me. So I go all the way across the range on the Nellis range. I push from student gap and I sweep all the way across the range and I don't shoot anybody. So Spider-Man's looking at me right now with a, <laughs> with a chagrin on his face going, how can that be? And because, well, I'll, I'll describe the great sheet later. So I go all the way across and I'm at Stonewall and there's a Hornet. I'm at 24. 7,000 feet. I think he's at 29,000 feet entering the range. I didn't radar detect him. He didn't radar detect me. And it says if I look about 45 degrees left and 10 degrees high, he sets his wings on me and I set my wings on him at the same time and we start turning. Nice. So I merge with him and I have about 12,500 pounds of gas. So the tanks are dry. So I you know, go afterburner and we start turning. This fight goes up. It goes down. It goes single circle. And eventually, there is a floor transition that happens because the floor for the fight, for the full-up maneuvering, was 14,000 feet. Mm -hmm. And I ease off in this fight. You're talking about getting your energy back. You're talking about if you can get me slow. Mm -hmm. So he had gotten me slow, and he had tied me up for a long time. And I got back to about 400 to 420 knots. And he's down at 120, right at the floor, lots of alpha. And no kidding, I just outrate him around the turn, come around and take a gunshot. (laughs) <laughs> As I take that gunshot, I realize, because I had flown through my bingo fuel, which I should have not done, okay, I finally get that gunshot, and I come off, I pull it out of burners, and I'm at, I'm at 3.8 on the gas. <laughs> That's a lot of fuel burn in that oh my one go- fight. Oh, my gosh. It was a fantastic fight. So mm-hmm. anyway, long story short, I go back to the debrief, and I'm like, this was a terrible ride for me. I'm like, I'm for sure going to bust this ride. So in the debrief, in the back of the room, 
I'm watching the ACMI and I'm I'm just cringing watching this whole thing because I missed all of my sorting and targeting and it just was <laughs> not good. I go, but then this Marine major in the back of the room yells, stop. Uh-oh. I'm like, oh, that no. That means he's got a shot, right? No, he doesn't. But he goes, who's the eagle right there? Who's that guy? And I'm slumping in my seat, <laughs> trying not to be seen. And I go, it was me. He goes, this was the greatest engagement I've ever been in ever. It was four <laughs> minutes and I was bingo and it was awesome. Thank you. Uh, and I'm like, oh gosh, I'm busted this ride. <laughs> so anyway, I think I got lucky and passed it. But going back to the point yeah. of, if you could get me slow, you have an advantage. Yeah. If I could keep my speed up and keep your nose at bay, right. then I could have the advantage in the Eagle. Well, and if you can get the pressure off you long enough, you can get your speed back. It takes me a exactly. long time to get my speed back in the F-18. I'm trying to remember the numbers. I think when you unload uh, at about 250, about three seconds later, you're getting 50 knots. And then about another three seconds, you're 100 knots. Wow. So about five, six yeah. seconds, you've gained 100 knots back. The F-18 uh, needs on that. The, on the proper acceleration profile. Yeah, that's Those impressive. numbers match, Spidey, close enough. But uh, Assuming optimum acceleration and you got a little it, altitude. It's, it is with. important to uh, differentiate, though, when you talk about you, know, you got to fight and dogfight one of the strike eagles. The strike eagles mm-hmm. are completely differently configured, right. and they're configured for air to ground, of yeah. course. Yep. And so the drag of that F-15 is completely different because of everything they have hanging That's up. Right. They've got targeting pods. They've got well, a bigger canopy. They've got uh, conformal tank, uh, conformal tanks, conformal. heavy jets. So the F-15 Strike Eagle, literally empty, no gas, no weapons on board, weighs the same as an F-15 Sea model full of gas. Wow. If you took those uh, conformals off, that is a heck of a performing aircraft. Absolutely. Yeah. But it's a lot a lot to do with the targeting pods because they have so much drag. Gotcha. Awesome. All right, let's move on to armament. And I guess we'll talk. You already said the M61. How many rounds? M51. M51A. 51? It is uh, 900. Yeah, hold on, hold on. I'm going to call you on M61, sorry. M61. <laughs> M61. Sorry, M61 Alpha. It was uh, 940 rounds. 940, 940 wow. 940 okay. rounds. Uh, so that uh, is incredible that that, M61 has been on so many different aircraft. Oh, yeah. yep. uh, it was designed in the 50s, uh, 100 bullets per second, which yeah. is still mind-boggling to me. So 940 rounds, so about nine and a half seconds worth of sugar squeeze. Two and a half degree up cant. Oh, okay. uh, and it's in the, the right wing route right above the, yeah. uh, the engine on the right side. So what's incredible is they've only upgraded the actual bullets a couple times mm-hmm. since the aircraft's been flying. Gun is so incredible. So that was the start of it. When the F-15 was designed, it was designed to do all the air-to-air, high altitude, all that stuff we discussed. But armament, they just took what they already had from the F-4. So they really just transferred Mm -hmm. what the F-4 was carrying at the time, which were AIM-7s, four of those, which are radar-guided missiles. So the aircraft radar locks under a target, holds onto the target, shoots the AIM-7, holds on the target until the AIM-7 actually impacts. Uh, and that's a radar-guided uh, missile. So the right. four AIM-7s, the Great White, we call it, 500-pound uh, air-to-air missile, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. And it uh, succeeded. We took down 36 enemy aircraft in Desert Storm. With Sparrows? Uh, yeah, with wow. Sparrows. It's a quite a bit better record than the Sparrow had in Vietnam. Absolutely. But same. So they fixed things. It was a different version of, right, of Sparrow. Uh, it was the Mike version. But anyway, mm-hmm. yeah, AIM-7, same thing that the fours were flying in. Vietnam. So kind of interesting that Mm -hmm. the weapons didn't change. And we flew AIM-9s, so four Sparrows, AIM-7 Sparrows, and four AIM-9s. When I started in the late 
uh, 80s. It was the AIM-9 Lima, which was not flare, uh, didn't have any flare rejection capability. And then they transitioned very quickly, early 90s, to AIM-9 Mike, which right. had some flare yeah. rejection capability. So basically, it's a 4 by 4 load, all uh, air-to-air weapons with the four AIM-7s, four AIM-9 Mikes. Okay. And then the, the M61 Alpha gun. So, uh, so we that was letting you get by with that. No, that's good. I don't know where that came from. I was thinking of the P51 earlier. I think. Oh, okay, yeah. So that's where it came from my brain. So anyway, no problem. That was the design, and through Desert Storm, that's what we carried. So there okay. were no AMRAMs in Desert Storm. We had AIM7s, right. and that's where all the takedowns were. There were a couple AIM9 takedowns. Right. So the 36 we got. There were a couple of AIM-9s, but most of them were AIM-7 mm-hmm. uh, takedowns. It was right literally the year after Desert Storm, and we're doing uh, not only provide comfort, deny flight, and all the missions since Desert Storm. Yeah. Uh, it was literally the year after that uh, they started carrying AMRAMs, and uh, there were a couple of AMRAM yeah. takedowns during that. So there's a picture of an F-18 with 10 AMRAM on it. And I, of course, you know, you'd know, you never, I don't think, ever really do that. But how many, if you really wanted to load everything on the Eagle, how many total missiles can you carry? Eight missiles. And you okay. can load them up. You can load them up with eight AMRAMs. Okay. Now, so the AMRAM, unlike the AIM-7, which is the radar-guided, the AMRAM is semi-active, which right. is the radar still locks into a target, you shoot, now, the missile itself has a F-16 radar, we call it, in it, <laughs> and it can find the target on its own That's once right. it gets close you enough. You tell it where to go, yeah. And then it's on yeah. its own. We actually so the did s- talk about the... Uh, semi, yeah. So the semi-active mm-hmm. capability. So you can actually load eight AMRAMs mm-hmm. if you wanted to, and so that's what gets into uh, mission commander decisions and right. uh, weapons availability, uh, what's the loadout, what do we expect from the enemy, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. on uh, day flight, night flight, weather flight, et cetera, yep. to whether you have all eight AMRAMs. We have seven AMRAMs and an AIM-9. Uh, now we're carrying AIM-9Xs, uh, which are... And the joint helmet, so that's a much nicer, combination. Yeah, mm-hmm. so it's fantastic front combination. So some of the upgrades we've gotten, like you said, okay. the helmet and 9X have completely changed the sh- the close range yeah. uh, capability and lethality of the F-15. Let me ask you this. The gun, did you guys ever, I know, you know, not a pound for air to ground or whatever the expression is, but was there ever a part of the training or ready room discussions of using the gun in air to surface? Absolutely, we have. In Desert Storm, we had three gun strafes. Two guys took out a candid on the ground. That's a helicopter, right? No, no it's, a, uh, it's a cargo, duh. Like a C-141. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a Soviet C-141. It's a Soviet yeah. C-141. So we had strafing during oh, wow. Desert Storm. Okay. And in fact, the three-star general asked the crew when they landed, hey, have you guys trained to this? They go, <laughs> absolutely, sir. They saluted smartly. So since then, we actually do train to it. <laughs> Prior to that, that was their training. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we actually trained to that. So we have, okay. uh, we call it strafe. So we have strafe uh, missions in the F-15, even though we're air-to-air platform. Right. We want to be capable of mainly protecting troops on the ground if right. they need it. So we're kind of the last uh, line of defense for CAS, close air support for the ground troops. Right. So I mean, with 940 rounds, we have plenty of options to do multiple passes. Yeah. So we do practice that. Interestingly enough, we have no guided capability so it's literally old school put the thing on the thing and mm-hmm. that's hard to explain but it, it's all literally just like going hunting there's iron there, sights almost. there's it is an iron sight yeah okay well that was the point of my question is is for the last 20 plus years i mean there's really been no air-to-air threat arguably i mean a little bit in allied force a little bit in the desert storm initially but since the mid-90s 
it's been almost non-existent. And I guess what I'm asking is, what have you guys been doing? I don't mean that say that accusingly, but you know, so much of what sounds we like went, we're doing a pretty good job. <laughs> well, if you're not spending six months in the Gulf, you're probably in better shape than I was. That's all my deployments were just go sit in the Gulf. But have you guys still deployed and use that as like, hey, this is what we can offer, or have you just not had to deploy? Or because a lot of the last twenty years has been like you just said, Spidey supporting the guy on the ground. Absolutely. We do support the gathering ground. So from the the no-fly zones north and south of Iraq, which we did for decades. Yeah, Operation uh, Southern Watch and Northern Watch and all that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So we are prepared to do air-to-ground safe if we need to. That is our last call because typically we have a force out there that we have air-to-ground expertise that can help. But if they're out of fuel or out of weapons, we can roll into that role. Our main role is to make sure that there are no other air threats to affect the folks on the ground. Since uh, the Korean War, none of our ground troops have been attacked by another enemy aircraft. The last time we lost somebody in combat was uh, 15 April 1953 from an air attack. And so our goal is to maintain that track record. Mm. So we will make sure there are no other air threats. And sometimes it's not from the country you expect (laughs) because there are, quote, neutral nations that are not uh, supposed to be participating that may be close proximity and threatening your, your troops. So we have been deployed. We continue to deploy. Mm-hmm. But our home station training is not to the threat of the ground Yesterday, ISIS shoot. Right? Mm-hmm. It's to the hey, potential threat like we did in the Cold War. So what are the potential options of other countries that may threaten us? And we train to the highest potential threat. And it's only a potential. So we don't. we're not currently at threat on paper or otherwise, but right. we are prepared to take on any threat that happens to affect this nation from, yeah. this, from the globe. I think one other mission that's really important that needs to be stressed here is Eagles sit in Homeland Defense. Right. Noble uh, Eagle. 24-7, 365. Mm-hmm. It's a no-fail mission. Yeah. And Eagles are doing that day in, day out through with the Air National Guard. Is there any politics, though, on the pure air-to-air? I mean, I love it. I, I think it's necessary. And I think there's some drawback in multi-purpose aircraft, but that seems to be de rigueur, right? I don't know if it speaks French, but that's the flavor of the day or whatever, is to have an aircraft that does it all. Is there any politicking or anything else that comes with the F-15 is just being air to air? I mean, again, I, I feel like I'm playing the bad guy here. but <laughs> Absolutely. Well, absolutely. There are politics because, I mean, everyone wants the biggest bang for the buck, of course. So, right. If there's not a current need for a certain capability, we still want to use that aircraft for a different capability. So that's where multi-role comes right. into play. Uh, the fact that 1953 was the last time someone U.S. force was attacked from an enemy aircraft is a big deal. And that's the part that we need to make sure it doesn't get lost in the fray of, hey, let's save a buck here and there to make mm-hmm. multi-role. We need expertise and we need specialists and that's what we are we're specialists we are the infantry if you will in the air right we are out there in the front uh we take the spears and we throw the spears but there's no one in between us and the enemy so Mm -hmm. to have that capability and anyone who's been in any hand-to-hand combat which is kind of what we're designed to do in the air as we are close dogfights capable you can't do that well if you don't train to that solely. Using that example, you're a lot like everyone that was on the battlefield back in the way back ages, right? I mean, you, you're the long archers, uh, you're the spear guys, and then you're the dudes that are fighting it out hand to hand, and you're doing it all. That is it. 
It's like the British, when they lined up the red cats. Seriously, they all lined up. That's exactly what we do. We call it the Eagle Wall, and we line them up, and we hope they see that we're coming because they better be running. (laughs) Awesome. All right, next up is performance. I think we've already touched on it. Nine Gs. The Streak Eagle went up pretty high pretty quickly. But what have you guys seen as far as speed and, let's say, altitude? Uh, we're supposed to stay below 50,000 feet, okay. and not because of the capability of the plane, because of the lack of pressure, physiological. Right. Mm-hmm. So you're supposed to, and it's for our own safety, uh, have a pressure suit if you go above 50,000 feet. Because if you lose rapid decompression above 50,000, you can have some serious yeah. long-term consequences. Yes. So we're supposed to be limited to 50. <laughs> I've off been, the record. I, off the record, I've been to 55. Oh, that's okay. about that's, it. Yeah. That, and that's a pretty lightweight, frankly, mm-hmm. uh, aircraft, but you can kind of eke your way up as you get uh, lower fuel weight. Right. And uh, Streaky going up to 96, he was supposed to pull out, so to speak, there, and he got up to 100 and some, Whoa. over 100,000 before it, because the molecules are so far apart. He's pulling on the on the stick, but nothing's happening because there's very. So basically, he just kind of fell out of the sky, yeah. which is interesting. Well, I trust he was wearing a pressure suit. He certainly was. Okay. He certainly was. Fair enough. What have you so, seen on the Mach meter? I haven't seen as high as some of the guys who do the FCFs post maintenance flights. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Because they're designed to go fast, so they get up to about fifty and they ramp down. And mm-hmm. I've talked to guys who go up to Mach two. I've personally seen about Mach one six. Okay. Definitely over well over a thousand miles an hour, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. So, uh, about fifteen hundred miles an hour actually. So, it's fast up high, it's fast down low, but it's bumpy because yeah. of the light wing load. Oh, okay, so that's kind of interesting. How about you, Stretch? One point eight Mach, eight missiles, three bags. Wow! I oversped the tank. No, <laughs> oh. that's I'm amazing. Sure one point eight, right? One point five is the limit on the tank. How'd you get that fast? Just locked my left hand. It was 220 oh. motors, and I was coming back from a combat mission. I go, I'm going to see how fast we can go. <laughs> Incredible. But it will go fast. The one thing I did notice is uh, when I got to about 1.4, uh, I got a little extra thrust out of the engines, and it went right to 1.8. And it wow. was solid 1.8. I was cruising at 1.8 for probably 70 miles. That's amazing. That's amazing. So basically, you're going faster than the sun travels. So the sun, it's not the sun, it's basically the rotation of the earth is about 900 miles an hour. So you're going twice that fast. That's amazing. That's an interesting comparison. So the the other piece about the G limitations is there are no limitations other than ripping the wings off. So the F-15 is is all analog. It's all decided by the pilot how hard... You want to yeah. pull on the stick, how fast, how, what your altitude is. You have to assess all of that. So there's no limiter is the point. Mm-hmm. So unlike the computer-generated planes like the F-16 where you just pull and it gives you 9 Gs, maybe 9.2, it can, but it won't let you break right. the wings off. The right. F-15 is not like that. Huh. So I know personally individuals who have pulled 12 Gs Dang. in the F-15 up to 14 and still survived. The plane survived and the pilot survived. It you know, wasn't, it there wasn't was a, reusable. There was a, the airplane not, wasn't? The not, airplane was not reusable. Not when it get to 14. Not at 14 Gs. Wow. 13 uh, and a half. I remember yeah. one at 13 and a half, and a kid uh, avoided the water at Tyndall yeah. and uh, well, survived. Yeah. And it was really low. That's a good trade-off. Yeah. He survived, and we came back, and they go, put that one on the out in front of the, uh, uh, the base wing yeah. headquarters, and it's still sitting there. Did it come back with a little more dihedral than it, it left did, with? It did. <laughs> Jeez. But it survived and it saved oh, that wow. kid. So yeah, yeah that's a good thing. All right. So ha- the bottom line is you have to finesse this plane. So when we fight, we really have to be conscientious of our altitude okay. 
and our speed yeah. before we move the stick at all because it's very fine line between a 90% of maximum mm-hmm. nine, 9 Gs mm-hmm. versus 110% right. ripping the wings off. So it's incredible how how much of a finesse and that's why the experience is so important in the F-15 yeah. unlike other planes that have a digital forgiving. Yeah. Yeah. There, there is a part. regime mm-hmm. where your maximum G available decreases. If I'm remembering right, it's like 0.92 Mach to 1.1 Mach. In that regime, the, because the center of lift changes on right. the wing, mm-hmm. so it changes where it reacts on the wing, and therefore you have less G available. So it's very easy to over-G in the transonic regime. Oh, gotcha. Okay, well, unfortunately, we're going to have to pause the interview there because that's all the time we have for this episode. B.S., before we sign off for now, I wanted to ask you real quickly about the two-seat Eagles. Uh, do you have any at your unit, and how would you compare, based on what Spidey and Stretch were talking about, how would you compare the Air Force, or in your case, the Air National Guard, how they use two-seaters compared to the Navy and the Marine Corps? We have one currently flying now. I think we had another one that we sent to test. Uh, they needed an extra airframe, so we had two. We have one now, and Really, we use the backseat uh, kind of for incentive rides for the maintenance folks to get up there. Uh, I took a bunch of backseats when I first showed up to the unit just to, I wasn't qualified to fly yet. So I just jumped in the back and kind of listened to how things were done and just watch how things were done in the Eagle, which is pretty great. But just like the Hornet, it flies just the same almost as a single seat. It has a little bit less gas, just like a Hornet would, a two-seat Hornet would. Right. But really, it's imperceptible. So it's a great airplane. Cool. All right, buddy. Well, thanks for being part of this. Uh, can you stick around for part two next week? You bet. Awesome. Well, that'll do it for this week then. We'll catch you back here in about 10 days for part two of the F-15 Eagle here in F-15 month. And until then, we'll see you next time. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.